0: You're listening to The Best Of, The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now your host, Michelle Miao.
1: It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome to Little Friday. Yes, I made it here. I know it sounds really bad that... uh, Little Friday is this exciting for me. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm Michelle Miel, your host. Jax, our producer is in studio. Jax, are you excited for Little Friday? I am equally as, as excited. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you you actually still have to work on the weekends, but I don't know, you know, something happens like I just get so excited. Not that I don't work on Fridays, by the way, people. I I do work on Fridays, but uh I don't it just makes you feel good that it's the weekend's right around the corner, right? Yeah, Fridays are my day off, so this is my this is my f- Friday. Oh, today, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, little little, little Friday. So enjoy yourself and just start to per, you know preparing for the weekend. Whatever you have to do, whether it's work around the house or doing something incredible, visiting family. Um, I am so exhausted. I feel like you know this year has just. <laughs> It's just flown by. I mean, it's already August. Um, I think I've mentioned it here on the show as well for my volunteer work. I serve as a board member for San Francisco Pride. It's an interesting time because uh, elections is right around the corner. So we're, we're, we've got seven open seats. Um, and uh, I didn't know that community activism could actually be uh, considered politics. Did you know this, Jax? I mean, when you're saying open seats, I'm thinking politics but no i didn't really ever see it that way oh there's so much you know uh, politics behind it and i feel like i i feel like a politician i feel dirty <laughs> <laughs> I do. I know that people who tune into progressive voices know exactly what I'm talking about. But, you know, here, uh, uh, the radio program actually is my it's like my sanctuary. It's my safe place. This is where I have a lot of fun. So let's just get the party started. Don't ever become a politician, Jax was really not in my plan. Good, good. (laughs) Just stay here with us. Just stay in this safe place right here in this studio and be our producer forever. All right. Let's get to a little Friday's program and uh, on here with, with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Our guest today is Eric Sherman. He is the author of Out at Home, the true story of Glenn Burke. Glenn Burke being uh, considered the first openly gay baseball player who came out. He came out after retirement. And so here's the interview. Enjoy. Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Thank you
2: very much for having me, Michelle.
1: I think it's a it's a perfect show. You know, we just interviewed Sean Conroy, who, you know, the news organizations and even the MLB historian himself is saying that Sean is the very first openly gay professional baseball player who's on an active roster. Um, but at the same time, you can't help but take that title and think about our very own Glenn Burke. Right.
2: Yeah. And, um, you know, Glenn, Glenn, of course, was, was from your par, part of the country. Uh, he grew up in Berkeley, California, um, and he played in the major leagues back in the late '70s and tried to make it into the '80s, um, but was basically blackballed from from the sport at yeah. that. Point.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and we'll get we'll get into that. But first, you know, I want to talk about you and how did you meet Glenn and end up writing his book.
2: Well, I I consider myself really fortunate. I mean, you know, we're going back uh, 21 years, uh, back to 1994. And I had been a free freelance writer at that point for about 15 years. And I had heard about Glenn's story um, through Inside Sports. Um, That was a publication very much like Sports Illustrated uh, back in the 80s. And, And I remember reading about Glenn and, um, and, um, and remembering how, um, you know, truly amazing the story was. Um, can you still see me? Okay.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay.
2: I just wanted to make sure I dropped off the screen for a second. So, um, with, with inside sports, um, they did an expose actually written by Glenn Burke's lover, um, a man named Michael Smith. Uh, who was actually Glenn's par- partner uh, for several sev- several years, and um, and basically um, it it revealed that that Glenn had lead had led this secret life. Uh, in fact, the title of the magazine article was called uh, "The Gay Dodger," mm-hmm. um, and I just thought that was a fascinating story. Um, you know how how this wasn't getting even more publicity than it all, all already was. Uh, really surprised me. Um, and then Glenn went on the Today Show uh, with Brian Gumble, and um, and really for the first time came out publicly on his own back in 1982 and re- revealed the fact that he was the first major league player uh, to, to come out. Now, um, the Dodger players knew that he was gay. Uh, the Oakland A's players knew that he was gay. But he hadn't come he hadn't made that news public until 1982.
1: Now in the book, and uh, we're going to come back to that article, by the way, I do want to talk about that article. There's so much to talk about uh, when it comes to Glenn Burke's story. And that's what we're trying to do here is celebrate his story, celebrate him and, you know, kind of his contributions to not just the LGBTQ gay liberation movement, but to sports really as well. Um, You know, you mentioned he, he grew up in the Bay area. he, you know, was this kind of verbal guy. He naturally had this big build, and so a lot of people were afraid of him, and people didn't think that he was gay when he was playing, uh, you know, baseball. But he also didn't try to hide the fact that he was gay. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, the Dodgers knew, the players knew in some ways, some of his teammates, his closest friends knew. Uh, But what about his relationship with management? Because I think that you know, that really points out the discrimination that he faced as an athlete.
2: Yeah. um, You know, so Glenn Glenn Burke was a five-tool player. Um, He was referred to as Jim Gilliam, one of the coaches of the Dodgers, as potentially the next Willie Mays. I mean, he had that kind of um, five-tool talent you know, throwing, hitting, um, he, he, you know, he, he was very, very fast. So, um, but the Dodgers at the time, you know, they were the first team to draw 3 million fans, um, back in the seventies, uh, no one was even close. The Dodgers had a pristine image, um, which they wanted to maintain. And even though Glenn had all this talent, they really believed that, um, having a gay center fielder probably wasn't in their best interests at that time. Um, so, uh, they offered him money, um, to get married and Glenn's response to that was, uh, you mean to a woman mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and uh, apparently the offer was made by Al Campanis, who was the general manager at the time. And so obviously Glenn, You know, didn't think that was a very good idea. Didn't think it would be very fair to the woman that he would marry. And it was a significant sum of money, Um, something like $60,000, which pretty much matched Glenn's salary at the time. So imagine getting double your salary uh, just to get married. Um, And, you know, the Dodger management claimed, well, you know, this is something that we do for our players. We we want to. You know, give off a you know a real family type of image here with the dodgers. and and we like our players to get married. and And so Glenn um, asked around, and no other player was offered money to get married. so it it was kind of a situation where um the Dodgers felt that they needed to move Glenn, and they did to the Oakland A's um, for an aging Bill, Billy North. Um, And um, there was a lot of outrage in that Dodger clubhouse. A lot of um, Glenn's teammates liked Glenn and didn't like seeing him go.
1: Right, right, including Dusty Baker, who, as we know here in the Bay Area, you know, managed the, uh, the Giants, the San Francisco Giants. And uh, I want to get to their relationship in just a bit, but backing up to Dodgers management, you know, in the book, you also talk about uh, Glenn's relationship with Tommy Lasorda's son, Spunky, who was more of an effeminate gay, was out. And there were some rumors that, you know, that Tommy didn't like that he had this relationship with his gay son.
2: Well, right. Yeah. And that's what Glenn claimed uh, that, uh, you know, they, they were very, very close. Um, Glenn wouldn't get into uh, whether or not uh, there was a relationship there other than a friendship, um, said it was nobody's business. Uh, but they did go around town um, and, you know, around L.A., and, and they were good friends. And, and, you know, the thing that really I that I got from Glenn's family, particularly his sister, uh, Luther Burke, um was that Glenn Glenn was really close with Tommy Lasorda uh when he first came up you know they were both very gregarious outspoken people they both liked to joke around a lot and um but it was only after um the organization realized that Glenn Glenn was gay that's when the relationship started to go sour um so but again i mean you know a very different time in our society. Um, and um, so right. Uh, the Dodgers move, moved him.
1: Right, right. Let's talk about his friendship with Dusty Baker. I mean, you know, even um, when he got sick, you know, he mentions, or at least in the book, it's mentioned that, you know, Dusty was really one of the guys that he really looked up to who he considered a good friend, right?
2: Yeah, he, D- Dusty Baker was Glenn Burke's best friend on the team. Um, when Glenn was sick, um, you know, Dusty, um, you you know, would go and see Glenn. Um, Dusty, um, is a terrific human being. I've I've had the honor and pleasure of meeting with and talking with Dusty Baker on several occasions. Um, and, um, he would refer to Glenn as his son, still does. Uh, I mean, if you ever had Dusty on, on your show, he would say, yeah, Glenn was my son. and You know, after Dusty found out that Glenn was gay, you know, Dusty kept introducing Glenn to these beautiful women, Mm -hmm. and Glenn would always be like, "Oh well, you know, she's not so attractive, and and you know, she's not really my type." And Dusty's like, "What are you talking about?" (laughs) So, um, you know, once Dusty found found out, he was completely cool with it, and so I often get asked, uh, Michelle. you know, are are there any big league managers today or in recent memory, you know, that, that would have been able to um, manage or, or, you know, coach an openly gay player? And certainly Dusty would have been one of them.
1: You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com.
0: And now, back to the Michelle Miao Show.
1: I want to go back to the A's. So we talked about a little bit that he got traded to the Oakland A's. And, you know, one would think, I mean, he's coming home, he's in the Bay Area during the time, I guess... Yeah, the gay liberation movement was just starting. Maybe he could have found some support outside of baseball if he kept going. But he ended up retiring because of a comment that management had made. And and that comment was that they didn't want a gay person playing on their team, right?
2: Well... What happened with with the Oakland A's, he was going to the worst team in baseball. Um, In fact, the nickname for the Oakland A's back in 1980, 1979, 1980. And in that time, they were called the Triple A's after the minor league uh, system. Uh, They would draw 5,000 fans a game. Uh, So it was a very depressing place to play, especially after playing under the spotlight of Hollywood um, and nightly sellouts at Dodger stadium. So, um, he was happy to go home, uh, and he was happy to be in the Bay area in some respects, but in other respects, um, it was a very depressing team to play for now in 1980, the Oakland A's hired Billy Martin. Um, you know, Martin of course had managed the Yankees a couple of times. And so, so now he was back, In the bay area and all of a sudden the a's um had a lot of hope you know they had young players in their system like tony Armas and ricky henderson and some really good young pitching and uh billy ball was in town and so glenn was actually reinvigorated i mean he he was very excited to play for the a's so uh spring training 1980 Uh, Billy Martin is going around, as most managers do, and he's introducing the players and the coaches. I think it was the first or second day of spring training camp. And Billy gets to Glenn Burke, and he goes, um, and this is Glenn Burke. He's a faggot. And so it it created, needless to say, a very difficult work environment um, for Glenn. And it wasn't soon thereafter. Uh, he was sent to the minor leagues to rehab an injury and he was never call, called up and, and you, you, know, you, you really have to understand exactly how bad the Oakland A's were, were then. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Glenn, Glenn Burke would have been a no brainer starter every night. Um, but you know, after the Dodgers moved him, the A's just tried to bury him and, um, and at a point when, just stop, yeah. you know, fighting, and 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 he retired. I think he was twenty six.
1: Yeah, and in reading, is you know, the book and hearing Glenn's story, it's so frustrating. It makes me so sad. I live a different time, right? I live a time in which being out and here in San Francisco, you know, um, I'm thriving as a professional, and it's really hard to believe that. You know, a team like the Dodgers uh, would do that to someone who was considered a top prospect uh, in terms of being, like you said, you could, probably could have been the next Willie Mays. I want to go back to that article that you talked about, um, the Gay Dodger, you know, that was written by uh, Glenn's partner, Michael Smith. I mean, I thought that that was like double harm. Like, not only was he harmed as a professional, you know, by his bosses and— you know, but he was also harmed by his partner who pretty much outed him. And I believe that not everything in that article Glenn agreed with, right?
2: Um, I think he agreed with a lot of what was in there. But I, I completely agree with you that um, uh, he did not necessarily want that to come out. And my understanding was that Glenn didn't see any of that money, Um so but, you know, my Michael Smith was Glenn's partner. So, you know, they, they shared an apartment and I know that a lot of the money was spent on furniture and stuff like that. Um, but um, yeah, that was not with Glenn's permission, from what I understand. And that uh, didn't go over great with Glenn. Um, but Glenn was out of the game and and, you know, I, I, I don't think he was upset about it. But I think Glenn would have preferred um it to come out a little bit differently. Um, and then of course, soon soon thereafter, he went on the Today show with Brian gumbel. and um, and I know that was something that Glenn enjoyed doing.
1: And it, you know, at the end, I think he accepted the article because yeah. Michael wanted that to he wanted him to come out so that it would be a part of uh, or contribute to the gay liberation movement in which. Um, in hindsight, it really did. Uh, I mean, now you know, every year we we celebrate and we talk about Glenn Burke, and more and more athletes are coming out. And like I started off with the show today, we have an openly gay pro baseball player um, who's 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 playing and who's supported by management and his teammates. Um, you know, the most remarkable thing that I pulled from the book would be toward the end, although it was it was really sad. Glenn uh, gets sick, obviously dies from from AIDS, from what we know, um, but the Oakland A's and uh, a woman named Pamela, you know, they end up helping him at the end. They they redeemed themselves a little bit there.
2: They most certainly did. Um, Pamela Pitts, um, who is the longest running female executive in baseball history, um, she's still with the Oakland A's after all these years. I uh, I think she began back when Billy Martin started actually, and um, uh, she's just a phenomenal human being, a real diamond in the rough, um, but just a heart of gold. And she would sit with Glenn, uh, several nights a week at the Welcome Home restaurant in the Castro. I don't know if the Welcome Home is still there, there or not, um,
1: but
2: it's not, but it, it's not no. okay.
1: I know, sad, it's a change, new, different, you know, Castro and San Francisco altogether. But go I'm ahead.
2: I'm <laughs> sure. I, I visited there, uh, I guess, 20, 20 years ago. And um, so, yeah, um, she, it wasn't just, you know, the meal money and making sure that Glenn was eating, um, you know, because he was on the streets for a while. He was homeless. And uh, before he, he moved in with his sister, Lutha, and um, she would sit and talk to Glenn and and really ma- make sure that he was getting um, the nutrition and the health care that he needed um, as much as she could convince him to go, go get it. Uh, Glenn was into self-medication a lot of the times. Um, he was involved in a car accident, and his health really deteriorated Deteriorated after that. Um, And then, um, you you know, contracting HIV and then AIDS um, when he was in prison, um, you know, he started stealing and, uh, you know, anything for survival. Um, And she just really took very good care of him. Um, And the AIDS did redeem themselves. Um, And um, uh, that was a great thing that they did at the end of his life.
1: Now in you know twenty fifteen and years after his death, um, have any of the sports teams like the Dodgers or the A's? Uh, I don't know if there's any you know commemoration or something that they do that that they could you know possibly do for Glenn Burke to elevate and uh, expose his story. Uh, do you know if anything has been done for him? Yeah,
2: uh, the Oakland A's earlier this year had a Glenn Burke night, I believe. Um, uh, and that was put together by, by Pam, um, and I believe that was in May or early June. Um, Major League Baseball uh, at last year's All-Star Game um, dedicated um, an award to Glenn Burke uh, uh, posthumously, uh, and they flew his sister, Lutha, and Luther, one of Lutha's daughters, uh, to to the All Star Game, and Commissioner Bud Selig um, uh, made a, a very nice speech introduction, and of course appointed Billy Bean um, to the role of um, ambassador of inclusion uh, for Major League Baseball. So what Billy Bean does, um, and this is not the general manager of the A's, uh, Billy Bean was the second made major league a baseball player to reveal his homosexuality um, again after his playing career right. had, had ended. So Billy go, goes around to each of the 30 major league teams each year uh, starting last summer and, um, and talks about inclusion um, and really helping to pave the way um, for uh, hom- homosexuals to be open uh, in the major league environment.
1: But still no gay pro uh, professional player out in the MLB. So hoping that that uh, will happen soon. What do you think?
2: I predicted um, I I was interviewed by MSNBC during last year's All-Star break uh, after the um, news that Major League Baseball was going to honor Glenn. And I predicted that within a year that you'd have a professional baseball player an active one come out so you've had that with mr conroy sean in,
1: conroy that's right that's right, right. last question uh, for you eric and uh, just kind of your thoughts or i'm sorry did i did were you gonna wrap something up about MLB? no I, I
2: i was just gonna say that i believe it'll happen in the major leagues um you know within the next um two two or three years as well
1: yeah i think so too Um, My last question for you is to wrap up and, you know, I enjoyed talking to you about Glenn Burke. And by the way, thank you so much for completing the book. I know that um, you had mentioned in the book that was a promise you made to Glenn because he actually didn't live um, long enough for the book to come out, right?
2: Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, I didn't finish my earlier thought. Um, There were 17 other movie companies and no, I'm sorry, 17 other writers uh, and four movie companies that were interested in Glenn's story at the time. And I sent a book proposal off to Pamela Pitts, who showed it to Glenn. And out of all the proposals that he had, he had received, he liked my, mine the best. Um, so we had a publisher, uh, Taylor Publishing out of Texas. They're no longer. And they said that they would publish the book. And then the Major League Baseball strike hit at the end of the 94 season, beginning of 95, and something that never happens, uh, the publisher dropped the project um, after Glenn and I were well into it. And um, so I promised Glenn, literally, I mean, he had maybe a month to live, that I said to him, don't worry, Um, at my own expense, I'll make sure that this book is published. Um, So I, I made sure and um, it was uh, a, a self-publishing effort. Um, and all these years later, uh, this spring, um, Penguin Publishing, um, who I've written, uh, who I wrote another book with, uh, they decided to reissue it, you know, to republish it. And uh, with a forward from Billy Bean, and I wrote in a very lengthy afterword. Um, so, um, yeah. yeah.
1: No, I I really do appreciate that. I mean, honestly, and I think that younger people appreciate your book and also sports enthusiasts. I mean, uh, Glenn Burke's story is one of many baseball stories, um, but, you know, he just happens to be a a gay American baseball player. Uh, So I also appreciated how you included, you know, his gay life in there. And you're very um, real about the things that he went through, because as a, you know, gay fan. Uh, those are things that i can relate to so i really 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 thank you for for writing that book so just to again to finish up my thought and my last question i promised you and i'm gonna let you go um yeah. you know what do you think glenn would think of you know uh today kind of the time that we're living in and everything that's happening um you know what if he was with with us today like what what do you think he would be feeling
2: he would be absolutely shocked at how Major League Baseball uh, honored him um, in a in a pregame All Star Game um, festivity, um, that he would be honored like he was, um, he would be absolutely shocked that Jason Collins uh, adorned the cover of Sports Illustrated, um, that Michael Sam uh, has been able to speak so openly. Um, He would be absolutely shocked, uh, and happily so. And uh, I pray that wherever Glenn is today, that he is smiling and he's happy about um, how society has progressed, not just in sports, but in the military, um, in the courts. Um, And um, I, I, I just think he'd be thrilled about everything.
1: And on that note, I'm going to let you go. Eric, thank you so much for joining us here on this uh, program.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me, uh, Michelle. I've really enjoyed it.
0: You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. And now, back to The Michelle Miao Show.
1: It's Michelle Meow, You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Our next guest is the author of Under This Beautiful Dome, a memoir that tells a love story between a journalist and a senator during the 90s when gay love was definitely not accepted or was not accepted as much as it is today in mainstream media and especially unaccepted and shamed if it involved people in the White House. She is the journalist in this story. So let's welcome Terry Mutchler to the program. Terry, welcome.
3: Uh, Michelle, thank you. It's a great thrill to be on your show. Uh,
1: We we are excited to have you. And uh, I mean, your book uh, has a great love story, but also, you know, a story that goes in our history books. It it, uh, also will go into anything pertaining American politics. Um, Let's start with, you know, the fact that, It was quite a different time when when you may have been discussing your relationship in the 90s and compared to today's time. I mean, just turn on the television and it seems like even political programs like Scandal, for example, who, uh, you know, write gay love stories into the script. Uh, you know, back when you, know, you tell the love story between you and and Senator Penny Severns, the, the political climate was was very, very different, wasn't it?:
3: It was absolutely different. And if you did turn on the TV and see anything to do with uh, lesbians or gays, it was either you know them being arrested or jailed or killed, uh, as we saw in, in some of the um, terrible stories of our history. So it was a very much uh, different time then the open and more welcoming time, obviously, that exists now.
4: Now, this uh, story, I guess, it also takes place in, is it Decatur, Illinois? Small-town Illinois?
3: That's I mean. right. We were, yep, in central Illinois, uh, small-town Illinois, as you put it. That's a good way to describe it. It was uh, it was very much uh, an area that, um, like many of your uh, listeners maybe came from, uh, very rural central
1: uh United States, I'll start with um love at first sight i'm such a I'm such a romantic uh you know person here <laughs> i mean i just i love the story so much and you had me at tears, but you know you were working as the first woman appointed um a p associated press state House bureau chief in illinois, and you walk out of the capitol rotunda and bam, there she was yeah. senator penny severns democrat fifty first district from Decatur. Was she really wearing a red suit?
3: She was. And uh, what's interesting is I did not know who she was. I did not know that she was a senator. Um, The way that the Capitol and most Capitals around the country are set up is that they they have a dome. Uh, And as I was walking up um, in the center of the Capitol under the dome, uh, there Penny was in a red suit. And most of the other suits, as I wrote in the book, were sort of a sea of dark gray. I think I referred to it as a look like a rack from Brooks Brothers <laughs> and I I looked up and I I saw this incredibly um you know just gorgeous vibrant woman and I I was spellbound. I felt like a goof. I was standing there on the Capitol steps kind of just staring at her. Um and I I didn't know who she was. I I presumed, uh, which was a kind of a sore point, Penny, for the, rest of her, for the rest of her life, at least. I presumed she was a lobbyist, and um, so what she, she hated—that uh, I thought that—but um, it was to be at least another week or two before I found out who she was. But yes, that is that is exactly how it happened. She was standing in this red suit, she was talking with someone, and had been kind of in the political realm patting his back as, as you'll see a lot in dc or um uh, you know other other capitals and so that I, I was mesmerized in that moment in the
4: book you mentioned it was just you know in three minutes you, you'd fallen in love um with someone you again like you just said you hadn't met you hadn't met her uh i uh, didn't know who if she was gay or straight or anything tell us how then the relationship actually started how did once you found out who was it after you found out more about her and then met her more or what happened?
3: I was, I was mesmerized for days. And as I had written in the book, I had called a friend of mine who was a, a reporting pal who was back in New York. And I said, I just fell in love. And of course she wanted all the details. And I had none to offer other than <laughs> I see this woman in a red suit and, and she was my friend and Connors was very you know sweet about it. It was in essence saying, yeah, call me back when you have some more facts. Um, <laughs> But um, what happened was I, I kind of looked everywhere I went in the Capitol for the next series of days. I, I looked to see if I could see this woman again. And, um, and I had been, as the AP Bureau Chief, I was editing a story of one of the, the folks that worked for me. And um, I was double-checking, because I was new to the state of Illinois, I was double-checking the facts. And I, I pulled out a what's called a blue book, It's just a directory of... Lawmakers to try to double-check the party affiliation of a lawmaker, and when I had done that, um, I had I saw this picture staring back at me of the woman that I had seen in the rotunda, and I discovered that it was um, in fact Senator Penny Severin. Um, I using kind of a reporting trick. I, I once I figured out who she was, I I decided that I was going to interview her uh, and so just to get to talk to her and, um, I had taken my reporter's notebook. I'd actually met her, uh, at, at a newsstand in the Capitol and we spoke just for a few minutes. Uh, later when I was working on a story related to open government, I sought uh, Senator Severance out to get a few quotes and, um, I, you know, it was just a very kind of like sort of a cat and mouse sort of thing. I had, I had no idea if she was gay, if she was straight. I, I knew nothing about her. Um, there was one evening that, I, and where the relationship sort of kicked off, if you will, is uh, one evening I had, um, I was new to Illinois. I didn't have much to do. Uh, and so I was trying to get some work done at my Capitol office. And I saw that her light, was on and it was about 10 o'clock on a Friday night, and I thought there is no way that there, that a lawmaker is is working this late at night. <laughs> and I took my notebook, went up to do another interview, and as it turns out, she wasn't back there. And uh, and uh, we decided to have a drink. An, a staff member had come in and kind of sort of blew that one-on-one situation, but the three of us went and had uh, well, I had we had drinks, but this other woman had dinner. And, um, and we just started a conversation and then I sort of, I mean, I admit it. I kind of chased her a little bit there. (laughs) I, I didn't, you know, I, I I looked for her everywhere I went. Um, we decided to have dinner. There's a funny story in the book about how, um, I had, I had approached her and I I don't know exactly how I got the courage to do this, but I asked her if she wanted to have dinner and she said to me, you'll have to check with my scheduler. (laughs) And I, I immediately, I, you know, I, I'm sure I can't say on radio what I really thought, but I was like, you know I think I'm you can say it here on the this,
1: program. I mean, oh, you know, it's clear I, enough. You
3: know, I was like, I was, was kind of like, fuck you, you know? <laughs> you know, schedule. And, and as it turned out, I didn't really understand what it meant to be a person in her position with the schedule that she had. And so um, I was very put off. And uh, a few days later, uh, I, had, I was covering the Senate, which, by the way, if you have any aspiring journalists out there, you should not be involved with your sources. But um, nonetheless, I I was out on the Senate floor. She approached me and asked me if I liked Thai food. And we ended up going out for dinner. Of course, it was in a group. And then from that, we ended up having uh, dinner alone. And then we came back to my porch for drinks. And so over the period of about three weeks, um, I went from seeing this beautiful woman in red not knowing who she was to sharing a first kiss on my porch in uh in, in Illinois
1: and Thai food and Thai food
3: anti-food. Anti-food. Uh, and you know and i mean the the thing about um you know we fell very fast and there's no uh you know i'm sure a lot of people have that experience but um but it was very it, it seemed in my mind at the time very dangerous from an ethical standpoint because she was a senator. I was the first AP Bureau chief. But um but you know, there was pretty much no looking back once we sort of got and, our footing that we were in this.
1: And we're gonna get we're gonna get into the heart of, you know, the story and your book here. Um we're running up on a break, uh, just want to remind folks we're speaking with Terry Muchler, who's the author of Under This Beautiful Dome. So we're discussing her love story with Senator Penny Severns of uh, Decatur, Illinois. Uh, John, you had a question right before we go and break.
4: Well, actually, I'd, I suspect you don't have enough time to get into it now. But uh, when we come back, I want to ask you—you so you learned who she was. When we come back, tell us what type of a person she was. I mean, when you got to know her, and, I, and the reason I'm saying let's do this after the break is. I suspect that's not something you can answer in 30 seconds.
1: Or maybe it is. I don't know. How many minutes well, do we have tell until our what? break? The
3: headline of it would be, um, she was she was very, very, very beautiful. She was very kind. Um, and her mantra before we go to break was, she always put her constituents first, her family second, and herself last. I mean, she was a very giving person.
1: And you, you know, I mean, just by reading her Wikipedia, it's like she never gave up. Um, she just kept always you know, going back in, in the ring, if you will, uh, putting her name out there, not, not just running for senator, but other positions, which we'll get into. So I guess we'll just take the break here. So don't go away. We're going to continue our conversation. I know you're dying to hear the rest of the story under this beautiful dome with Terry Mutchler. So the Michelle Miao show continues right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at progressivevoices.com.
0: And now, back to the Michelle Miao show.
1: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this beautiful Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. Our guest today and on the phone with us is Terry Mutchler, who is an attorney, by the way, and an award-winning journalist who worked for the Associated Press. And she currently now is Pennsylvania's first executive director of the Office of Open Records, making sure there's government transparency. And today, though, she's talking about her book under this beautiful dome and being transparent about a relationship. And she didn't talk too much about so Terry you know I it, it, it's interesting to me as I'm, I'm reading the book I didn't uh, finish it but what I what I uh, what sparked for me was how honest and transparent you were about the love and that includes the love making I mean it you know it's kind of weird to think about politicians making love I mean who thinks about even Hillary Clinton making love like that's just really super weird. And I'm going back to the, the scandal days where, you know, or the whole television show scandal and, and and politicians being involved with relationships seem to be taboo or, or scandalous. But also the lovemaking was significant for me because while making love, both of you found lumps. Um, let's, let's go there. We know that Penny had passed away from cancer, uh, which is, you know, what this book is about the relationship and, um, what, ev- what, what, what took her life from her. Uh, what, let's talk about, you know, the first time we found a lump for you and then move on to Penny.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the reason that I wrote about this in the book was, was twofold. Um, when, uh, when I discovered a lump that thankfully was benign, um, even though Penny and I were in very deep, secretive relationships, and we went to bizarre extremes to hide this relationship. I would park two miles away from our house. You know, we would, uh, you know, we just did some very unusual things to keep this secret. But when I discovered the lump, Penny, who had had, her family has a had a history of breast cancer. One sibling died and another is uh, happily well, and but it, it was in remission at that point. Uh, Penny insisted on, um, you know, coming to the doctor with me, which was very difficult to explain. Here, here we are in a secret relationship, and yet, who is this not only person but this kind of famous person in, in Central Illinois who's coming to the doctor with me? And why? And I wrote about that in the book. the The second piece, of course, was that when we discovered uh, Penny was always living in fear of this disease that was chasing know, that claimed one of her siblings and was now chasing her. We didn't know that at the time, but uh, we had discovered that lump one Sunday morning, um, you know, when we were uh, uh, making love and it it set the tone for um, some of the major arguments we would have about, you know, uh, what she needed to do to, you know, to to get to the doctor quickly. And which did not happen, as I wrote in the book, and it it set the frame for how toxic secrecy can be. And for any of your listeners, you know, that are in relationships or, you know, love just anyone, um, you know, think about trying to maneuver a major medical crisis um, when you can't even identify as the person's partner or uh, it would even be odd if you were there as a friend, and so you know the book in many ways is a paradox of you know we were deeply in love we you know there was it was kind of no holes barred to the love, but also equally as deep was this extraordinary secrecy and toxicity that we put ourselves through because of kind of the nature of the time. At, at that time, and where gay marriage was on the social stratosphere. But I think, even more honestly, I think we were homophobic. Hmm. And I think that that also, you know, we—I realized in writing the book that while we very easily latched on to this idea that the reason we were secret was because of the ethical conundrum of her being a senator—and and I want to inject here, not just a senator, she was the first female. Bureau, I'm sorry, the first uh, female Senate budget negotiator. She was the first, um, she made American history being the first um, all-female team on a gubernatorial ticket in American history. The Washington Post had written about that at the time. So she was a very prominent, um, but we latched onto this idea that if we were out, that it would be, because of the ethical things, I would be fired, which would have been true, and she would have lost her job. But when I wrote the book, what I realized is, I kind of realized it long before. Is it was really homophobia that kept us uh, in the closet. I know that there are a lot of people who were, um, you know, out long before, uh, you know, Penny and I in the '90s had this issue. I had a woman come up to me uh, who was 85 years old when I spoke at the Free Library in Philadelphia, and she and her. Partner of like sixty years, we're getting married this year. And she, at the end, she wanted the picture. She wanted me to sign her book. And then at the end, she said, "I have a question for you." She said, "You know, I don't really understand what the big problem was coming out in the nineties. I came out in the sixties. I I sort of felt like I was being schooled on my, you know. uh, But there was a there was a context to it. And for Penny, it was a it was a world of politics. For me, you know, I in addition to um, the homophobia that came with my own experience. You know, I grew, up, I grew up in a deeply religious family, and I think that that also played a part in um, the secrecy. So I wrote about, you know, I, I, the reason I wrote as plainly and as honestly as I could, writing the easy stuff, writing about being in love was, was fun. That was, you know, it's easy to go back in your mind's eye and remember how you met someone that you're in love with. The difficult part was being honest enough to really be honest enough and sort of report on myself, because I knew that for a book like this, if, you know, readers would be able to—they can smell when you're not authentic. Right. And um, and here, as difficult as it was to write some of the things that I wrote about myself um, and about my relationship with Penny uh, and my home life and all those things, um, you know. It if you're going to have a reckoning, you're going to have to have a real reckoning, and that meant speaking the truth completely. Now, were either
4: of you out to anyone? I mean, you were talking to you, your friend in New York, you said, and, and about this beautiful woman you met. So, obviously, some of your friends knew, at least. How wide Well, actually, was that? they
3: didn't. Oh, really? I circled back with that friend when she asked me what happened once I was in the relationship with Penny, and I, I lied to my friend, and I said that nothing came of it. Okay. Um, we... we it, it took about three years into the relationship. Um, I disclosed it to my sister-in-law. Uh, and I do not, I am not aware of anyone that Penny disclosed it to. Um, but interestingly enough, and we get to this in the book, um, her identical twin, who I've obviously written about in the book as well, um, uh You know, was kind of in on the secret, but we all bought into the fact that it was under an ethical conundrum, uh, that that kept it secret. But it was also kind of, as I write in the book, an open secret. When we would go to each other's family's house, we would sleep in the same bed. I mean, you know, it was just something though that wasn't discussed.
4: Well, that's also good. It just you know means you have less laundry to do in the morning. Um, (laughs) You you have that quote in there, and I I think it was from her sister, and I, I thought it was. I don't know. It, it affected me quite a bit. Where I think she was saying, uh, "You and she, and Penny were not married. You were, what was it? You were friends or whatever." And, and she took you under right. her wing. I mean, right. that that could not have been nice to
0: hear.
3: Um, at the time that that quote occurred, you know, when when I had that conversation, you know, you fast forward through a lot in yeah. the book. At that point, um, Penny died um, in February of ninety eight. Um, I went through that grieving process uh initially um extremely alone and isolated, and within about two weeks after Penny's death, um, I was locked out of our home and um and these were things that I could not um, assimilate I couldn't make sense of and also uh and this is a very difficult thing to to say out loud, let alone say having written it. Um, you know, I couldn't speak for myself. I was, I was completely collapsed, both in grief, in secrecy, in loyalty, in fear. And when that occurred, I, I, I acquiesced and, uh, and I walked away when I was locked out. I mean, not in that moment. I, I had a, uh, you know, as I detail in the book, when I came face to face with understanding that someone that I was very close to Penny's identical twin that she was the one that had locked me out it, it it I can't explain to you I still can't even explain it to myself the internal implosion that occurred um in you know within myself it took me several years uh and and not in the best forms of therapy I mean I went deep into alcoholism I went deep into just a lot of um you know terrible horrific um you know behavior uh tr- you know coping mechanisms
1: what what happens when to a lot of us in the queer community you know who had suffered through that time of oppression and uh, discrimination by the way uh, but, yeah but please, and I think yeah.
3: That, yeah i think that um you know i certainly did not have the skill set to handle what i was up against i was a widow at 32 i'd been in a secret relationship um you know, I had a, Penny and I together were in extreme denial about her death. I mean, about her impending death. Right. Um, and so, you know, even if we could have, uh, and we did, we tried, you know, to try to get things in order. But we we kind of ran out of time, obviously. But the piece that you're mentioning there, when I finally kind of got my shit together uh, several years later and, and started to have some compassion for what happened here, I made an effort to go, finally, um, confront Penny's twin. It was very difficult because she was also an identical twin, mm-hmm. and so when you you know seeing her was this it was kind of this mind uh, bend, yeah. you know. But in any event, when I when I tried to approach her, I I I met with her. I wanted her to see that the Penny and I had about a thousand love letters between us and cards, and I thought that if I could start. From a position of love, that it would work, that I would be able to have her to understand what happened, and to you know that we would grieve together because you know I, I can't imagine what it must be like to lose an identical twin. I, I certainly now, unfortunately, know what it's like to lose a spouse. But it was in that context that she said to me, um, "You were not married, Terry, uh, and uh, Penny took you under her wing. That's all." She said, "Don't say you were married," and it was a very, um, you know, that's when my anger started to kick in. I think, Uh, and if I could have tapped into that anger years earlier, I think it could have saved myself from what I experienced.
1: Terry, Terry, it
3: it didn't happen.
1: We, I'm sure, we could go this entire hour, which I would (laughs) love to, in in terms of the book, because again, I I am thankful for you, um, in you know, publishing this book and putting it out there and the stories that you do tell. Um, unfortunately, we're running up against time. And I I kind of wanted to ask this question. I mean, sure. in the book, you do talk about the fact that, uh, you know, both you and... Penny had a relationship with the Clintons. Here we are in 2015. Hillary is, ru- you mm-hmm. know, running for president. She could become the first uh, female president, which I'm sure you know resonates with you and in, in Penny and her position. And and then when talking about LGBTQ rights, here we are with marriage equality. But going back to what you said, you know, if you came out, you could be fired. We still could be fired from our jobs today. Absolutely. Um, you know, what's your reflection on the time that has passed since Penny passed away in '98? And if um if she were still with us today, what do you think she would have thought of, you know, or of the um the movement here? And do you think that she would probably try to run for president herself if she was here with us today?
3: You know, it's um I, I love and hate when I get questions like this. They're they're great questions and the the, the true reality is I we will never really know the answer. Mm-hmm. However, um as as Uh, You know, having been Penny's press secretary and obviously um, having been her spouse for the years that we were together, I think I have kind of an insight on this. I think the first thing that I think she, like so many of us, would be astounded at the warp speed of the last 20 years, where uh, the, you know, where today we are sitting with a Supreme Court decision that that gives us marriage equality. And I think that there would be a level of shock uh, that, wow that this went from, you know, the secrecy that, that we encountered uh, to, uh, to where we are today. I think that, um, that on a political level, I, I'm, I have no question in my mind that she would be a supporter of Hillary Clinton. Uh, I think that, um, that um, there, she had the relationship with, with uh, Senator Clinton. I, I was kind of in the, uh, the fray of that. Uh, and so I don't want to overstate that in any way. But Penny did have a uh, a friendship with her. One of the one of the greatest moments for me, watching that was when Penny was on her way to get a bone marrow transplant in Loyola, at uh, in Chicago, in the car on the way up. Uh, uh, then First Lady Hillary Clinton called her to wish her well and to, and stayed in touch with her during that arduous arduous process. Um, so. I think Penny would, I think she would have been the first governor of Illinois. I think beyond that, I I don't, I don't recall her ever speaking of aspirations of the White House, as, 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 you know, as an occupant of it, um, but you know, there's a, a lot happens in politics. I definitely believe that she would have gone on to capture the first um, gubernatorial, been in the first gubernatorial governor in in Illinois that was a woman. And I think beyond that, she probably would have gone on to serve uh you know under a president in the White House. I don't know that she would have uh gone to you know to do that herself um and you know it's it's I think we marvel at these times, but it's also critical to remember that for anyone that's out there, yes, we have marriage equality. you can get married at ten in the morning and by four in the afternoon, you can be kicked out of your house and lose your job mm-hmm. and if you're in the state of Kentucky. <laughs> you might not even get the marriage license. Right. But all right. Um, so look, I mean, I think it's, now's not the time to be complacent. I mm-hmm. think that we have to protect the rights that we've garnered. It doesn't mean, you know, um, you know, I, I, I'm, all, I'm grateful for rights, but I'm also, I am also super protective of them, and I don't think that we should let one inch go by, one day go by, where that gets eroded. I think that that's a call to your younger viewers to make sure that they understand what was won here and because they, in the future, are going to be the protectors of it.
1: Terry, thank you so much for joining us here on this program and for sharing your story. Everyone should pick up a copy of Under This Beautiful Dome, a Senator, a Journalist, and the Politics of Gay Love in America, in which, by the way, Rachel Maddow has hailed a uh, beautiful book and a remarkable story. Terry, thanks again for being with us. It
3: was my great pleasure. Thanks for having me on the
1: show. Thanks for listening. You can catch The Michelle Miall Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network.